0: Welcome to Twill, The Week in Health Law, the demise of Obamacare repeal is fake news, podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. Recording this episode on April 4th, 2017, I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, and my co-host, just back from shooting par at Mar-a-Lago, is (laughs) Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law at Baltimore, Maryland. And a very quick apology for the technical problems uh, that uh, some of you may have experienced over the last week or so uh, that might have uh, made some older shows re-download. It was a bug at our uh, uh, host that apparently they have now fixed. Uh, Maybe the the good news is that you enjoyed the old episodes all over again. So this week, Frank, a big greeting to Professor Craig Garthwaite, Associate Professor of Strategy and the co-director of Kellogg's Health Enterprise Management Program at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. He's an applied microeconomist whose research examines the effect of government policies and social phenomena with a focus on health and biopharma. His recent work has focused on the private sector effects of the ACA, including labor supply effects of large insurance expansions, changes in uncompensated hospital care resulting from public insurance expansions, and the responses of non-profit hospitals to financial shocks. Uh, big welcome, Craig. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Your piece in fortune a couple of weeks ago argued that the uh, then-proposed AHCA was a giant step backwards, given that there have been reports over the last few days, as we record this, that... Uh, the AHCA may have zombie like characteristics and could lurch back into sight uh, at any point, um, this time perhaps without any protection for pre existing conditions. This seems like a good opportunity to help our listeners understand the, the basics of what's going on here and, and possibly a, a good time to restate the, uh, the three legged stool principle.
1: Yeah, uh, three legged stool is one of our more complicated uh, economic theories, um, but, but broadly, what we're talking about here is how the the ACA expanded coverage using the private market. So part of the ACA uh, deals with sort of Medicaid, and we're going to push that to the side now. But basically, uh, for states that chose to expand it, if you made up to 140% of poverty, roughly 138% technically, uh, you could be covered by the state social insurance program. Otherwise, we have a series of subsidized insurance marketplaces that operate in every state. Uh, And and you face this difficulty when you set up an individual marketplace about how do you make it... of relatively fairly priced and have access for everyone and a a big feature of the ACA that people were interested in uh, is how do we make it that insurers in the individual marketplace uh, can offer insurance to everyone who shows up regardless of their health status right this is sort of often referred to as a ban on pre-existing conditions that was there before where if you were sick it was actually really hard to get insurance in the individual market Um, and so you start with that as sort of one leg of the stool right and that everyone wants it that if you're even if you're sick you can still buy access to insurance. Uh, That that leg on its own, though, doesn't make for a very stable insurance market because insurers are very worried that people are only the sick people will show up. It'll be really expensive to cover them and they'll have to raise premiums because these people are expensive. And then at the margin, relatively healthy people leave the market, causing you to raise premiums more. And that'll keep going back and forth in what economists nicely refer to as the adverse selection death spiral. To stop that from happening, the ACA has a second leg of its stool. And that second leg is a mandate that everyone has to buy access to insurance or has to, has to buy insurance uh, regardless of whether they want it or not. And if you don't pay for it, if you don't purchase insurance from some source, we're going to uh, give you a, a fairly sizable now tax penalty of roughly 2% of your income. Uh, so that's the second leg. But now we, we have to also come to grips with the fact that, you know, you can't get blood from a stone. So individuals, you know, even though you're making more than 138% of poverty, you can't actually afford insurance. In in the private market, so we're going to subsidize your premium. Uh, and those subsidies are going to sort of smoothly decrease as your income goes up. And so between 1% and 400% of poverty, you'll spend between 2 and 9% of your income on health insurance. All right, so that, that makes the third leg that people you know can afford to buy insurance. And then you've got a fairly stable stool as long as you can make all three of those legs work well together. So as long as, for example, you have a pretty effective mandate that gets people into the marketplace, and as long as you provide Subsidies that are sufficiently generous that people can purchase insurance. Right, so that's that's the original ACA or Obamacare. The Republicans came in and they said, "All right, well, we really like the one leg of the stool. Right, that 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 ban on pre-existing conditions that <laughs> that has pulled really well. Yeah. Um, so we want to keep that. Um, these other two legs, we're, we're not so sure about. Right. So for a variety of reasons, they believe um, that we uh, don't want to have the individual mandate or that it's a, it's an abrogation of people's freedom and liberty. Um, and so we we need to get rid of of that and replace it with something else. Um, and we don't really like these income-based subsidies because we believe that that uh, creates a disincentive for people to work. So as you earn more money, your subsidy goes down and it sort of operates like an income tax rate and Republicans don't really like income taxes. I should note that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use some pretty pejorative uh, statements at times about Republicans, but I am myself a lifelong Republican. So it's not, this is not sort of uh, some uh, liberal academic economist. I just think that, you know, we, even as a Republican, party we need to understand where markets work and where they don't all right and, and and so the Republicans are, we want to we want to make this a an age-based subsidy instead of an income-based subsidy so now everyone gets access to the subsidy and if you're younger you get a smaller subsidy And if you're older you get a, a greater subsidy the the thing about that though is that if you're going to provide the subsidy now to everyone either the bill is a going to be very expensive right or b you've got to decrease the value of the subsidy dramatically because we're now we're providing it just a bit a much bigger base and they want an option b uh, which we to make it far smaller. And so you're looking at a subsidy of between two and four thousand dollars in the original bill, uh, two if you were under 30, four if you were over 60. That means that someone who is over 60 is gonna see a meaningful four-digit increase in their health insurance premiums as a result of the AHCA. And then if we think about the dynamics of the insurance market, the only people willing to pay that high increase are people who are at the margin are sicker, right? And so it's gonna sicken the risk pool, which is the opposite. of what you want for the individual insurance market. In in addition, we sort of, uh, you you get rid of the individual mandate and we replace it with what we refer to as a continuous coverage penalty. And that means that if you don't maintain continuous health insurance coverage from some source, if you then choose to want to buy insurance, they'll sell it to you, but they can charge you a penalty of up to 30%. Um, Again, that's going to, the people who are going to be willing to take that bet to not buy insurance today and to wait to buy it in the future with this penalty are people who think they're healthy today and they're going to be healthy in the future. So the combination of both weakening the mandate and weakening the premiums means you're going to get a much sicker risk pool under the AHCA than you did under the original Obamacare. And that just makes for very bad policy, right? I mean, if we want to have an individual market, we should be doing things that strengthen the health of that risk pool, not weaken it. Uh, and so I think it's it, it's it's just the the basics of the original law were very bad from an economic point of view. Um and then as you sort of alluded to, uh the the things they're doing to try and now gain passage because right, the AHCA didn't get enough votes. It was pulled from the floor by the Speaker of the House at the request of the president. There are now debates over the last two days or reports of debates over the last two days that this is coming back. I think that the zombie-like nature is a good way of talking about it. Uh, and it's going to come back by by making the bill sort of even worse on many of these dimensions, right? which I'm sure we can get into. Um, but it just nothing they're doing when they talk about coming back fixes the underlying problems in the original bill. And if anything, the things they're doing to try and get House Freedom caucus members to vote mean it's going to operate even less effectively uh, than even the original bill would have.
0: So we know we have a pretty fragile individual market, um, and certainly a more wobbly stool is even worse than a slightly wobbly ACA stool. But what about these sort of other issues that are going around, sort of the the curtailment of the TV ad during the enrollment period, um, the political um, volatility around this? And other issues such as the lag between insurers in the individual markets, set their rates and enrollment periods. Um, is there one thing out of all that that you, you point to as making the, the market even more fragile or is it a, a wonderful uh, 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 combination of all of the horrors.
1: Yeah, I think it's more of sort of this toxic stew of things that we're doing for the marketplace here. Uh, so you alluded to a number of things. They all fall into a general bucket, I would say, of increased uncertainty about the future of the marketplaces. Uh, and what I mean by that is that, listen, I'm a, I'm a pretty strong supporter of these marketplaces. I think that they have a chance to do very well. I have research that shows that they're operating a lot like how we would expect a nascent marketplace to operate. But it's still in its early nascent and fairly fragile state. And so they they do depend on some degree of regulatory certainty and some degree of support from the entity that created them, which is the federal government. And with the uh, ascension of power of President Trump, we're just not seeing any of that support or certainty. And why that matters, and I think this relates to the lag you're talking about, is that right now, insurers are making a decision about the rates that they're going to charge for the 2018 market. And they're sort of making two decisions. One, sort of, do I want to participate in this Market at all, and two, what do I want to charge conditional on participating? And if you're worried about sort of the health of the marketplaces, and you look to the government, and they're saying things like, "Well, we can just wait for them to explode," um, or um, we think that we're going to do things on the regulatory nature to weaken the mandate, all of those things make you very worried about the political uncertainty that you're dealing with. And it's actually you know the this, the business problem these firms face of predicting what is the risk pool that will emerge seven months from now based on the the uh, the premium that I choose today is quite hard to figure out from an actuarial level. Right? If you then layer onto that, the political and regulatory uncertainty of what is this government going to be doing to support the marketplaces going forward, um, that might be just a bridge too far for these firms. They say, listen, it's just, it's just not worth it for me anymore. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull out of these marketplaces entirely. I'm not making a ton of money and I'm exposing myself to huge amounts of risk. And you alluded to this pulling of the television commercials, which is in some ways a very minor thing, right? So at the end of the last open enrollment period, The the outgoing Obama administration prepaid a bunch of television ads to run through all of open enrollment, the time period in which people sign up for ACA marketplace insurance. Uh, And so those commercials should have, they should have run. And we know that the people who sign up at the end of open enrollment when they were running are the people who tend to be healthiest because they don't really want to buy insurance, but they're being cajoled into it by some combination of sticks and carrots between the mandates and the subsidies. And the Obama administration pulled those commercials down. And there really, there's no reason to do that other than to try and depress and Enrollment in the marketplaces, right? The commercials were already paid for, so you can't even make.
0: So some... the, it was the Trump administration. That oh,
1: sorry, them. yeah. So right. the Trump administration pulled them down. I'm sorry, yeah. Um, and you can't, you can't even make uh, a statement about like some good government or being a watchful, you know, uh, watchful of the of the public purse because the commercials were already paid for. You're just saying I don't want this outreach to happen, and we think that ultimately enrollment in the marketplaces for the current period has been depressed by that decision. Um, if insurers see that, right? They see that action, they see the statements of we'll just let them explode, they're going to get very wary about uh, whether they're going to participate in the future. And we saw this come to some uh, immediate fruition yesterday when Wellmark, which is an insurer in Iowa, pulled out of the marketplaces for a number of reasons, but at least one of them was a statement that they don't believe that the mandate is going to be enforced in the future, and therefore they're worried about continued losses they would take in this marketplace. Um, That's the the kind of thing that this rhetoric can do. And and that's what I think I am quite worried about, that this is not, it's not just words, right? It's not just political rhetoric. It's a signal to the private market that this is not a place where you want to do business anymore. And I think that's a real problem for the future of the ACA marketplaces.
2: Yes, I think that's a very perceptive take here. And it does worry me because I, I felt like even in reviewing the price plan that I guess was uh, passed a, a year ago, or uh, or um, I was very worried there about what appeared to me a hostility to the idea of insurance itself, uh, not just a particular form of public insurance uh, or public insurance supports as in Obamacare. I was wondering, though, if we could get into a bit of your research on the effects of Obamacare or the non-effects, and there, there's two streams of your research that I think I find so interesting. One is um, you wrote a piece in 2012 called The Doctor Might See You Now, the supply side of public health insurance expansions that was about, you know, has, insh- has, public health, has health expansion or insurance expansion overtaxed the healthcare system? But you also have work that has looked at um, the health spending slowdown, uh, arguing that it's mainly due to economic factors, not to structural change. <clears throat> and so I was wondering if you could address each of those and uh, give us a sense of why health spending has slowed down and um, a sense of whether insurance expansion uh, threatens to overtax uh, the existing resources in the system.
1: Sure. Uh, so why don't, why don't I want to start with uh, the, the idea of what's driving health spending. Um, so there's there's a lot of questions about this uh, um, they're mainly driven by the the, the empirical fact uh, that since the passage of Obamacare in about uh, 2010 when it signed into law uh, the rate of growth in the in health spending in the United States has slowed down considerably um, which is good because we were all very concerned about the rate of growth in health spending and that health care would take up an increasing fraction of the GDP of the United States and so it goes down and it goes down roughly concurrent in the in, in data and in a correlative Sense with the passage of Obamacare and so many supporters of the law have said well look you know the ACA has decreased the rate of growth of health spending this is the opposite of what people have said people had said that you know this is just going to be a massive expansion in what we spend on health care um, I, I, I was skeptical of that for a variety of reasons and that's why we started looking at this work um, and one primary reason I was skeptical is that you actually if you look in the data the decline in the rate of growth of health spending uh, begins before the passage of the bill now companies are forward-looking and, and you, but it would be a, a pretty tough story to tell that there was some anticipatory effect that we restructured the entire healthcare system because we might pass the ACA. So we started thinking, well, what else was happening over this time period? And one thing we do know is that there's a, pr- a pretty strong relationship historically between the health of the American economy and spending on healthcare. Healthcare is a normal good. And what I mean by that, when economist says that, right, is that as your, as your income declines, you should spend less money on this good. Um, and what we found, we, we sort of, we said, okay, well, let's let's look at the the Great Recession, which also happened uh, in this time period, and see could regional variation in the impact of the recession help explain some of the changes in healthcare spending. And for the privately insured market, that is what we find, right? What we find is that for individuals in a sample of, of, of insured people, in places where the recession had its biggest impact, measured by the change in the employment to population ratio, are places where we saw the biggest slowdown in health expenditure growth. Uh, and so that, and we can explain about 70% of the decline over this time period in health expenditures just based on the regional variation of health insurance. Um, and so we don't think it's the ACA that to date has really driven the vast majority of the decline in the rate of growth of health spending. And I I, uh, I apologize sort of that it has to be that sort of clunky phrase all the time, the rate of growth of health spending. But it's important to, 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 to highlight that we're not talking about reducing health spending here, right? That That's a white whale we're never going to catch. We're just talking about slowing down the inexorable growth in the, in how much we spend on this. And we think it's economy, we think it's happening through a couple of different channels, right? Some of it is likely just people who are exposed to a portion of their healthcare spending, not purchasing as much health insurance, either because they have a deductible or they have a coinsurance rate. Um, So there's some aspect of that. Um, It's also that as a result of the downturn, employers trying to manage their compensation and not wanting to give people a reduction in their real wage, because people don't like reductions in their real wages, um, gave people less generous health insurance. Um, And that generally involves while moving them into plans that had more cost-sharing, and in response to that cost-sharing, people reduced their consumption of medical services. Um, what that means for the future, if that's a primary channel, is sort of how you think firms will restructure their benefits as the labor market starts to pick up, or will we just see people remaining in these high-deductible plans, which means this might be a permanent decline in the rate of growth of health spending. That doesn't mean it. People have sort of always, as I've done this research, I've been painted into this sort of you know anti-payment reform or anti-Obamacare camp, where I say that you know it hasn't had any effect on the marketplaces or on the rate of growth of health spending. It's, I think it hasn't had an effect to date, but I think there's promise in the bill that it could have an effect in the future. There are things in the bill about how we change the incentives that both individuals and health providers face that could result in reduced health expenditures going forward. But I think it's it's inaccurate to state that at this present time, we see any market decline in health expenditure growth as a result of the ACA. And as a, as a, economist as an empiricist, so I think it's an, it's important that we highlight sort of what the actual effects of the law are or not the the other study that you that you highlighted is actually something I wrote um, well before the ACA sort of right when I was leaving graduate school um, and it was the idea of sort of you know what what does happen as we increase um, the generosity of public health insurance in terms of the number of people that are uh, pulled into uh, the social insurance system uh, and, and when I you know there, there are different ways you could think about how this would affect but it sort of depends depends on where did the newly insured people come from right and you know when we when we increase the generosity of social insurance you can think of broadly two groups of people that get new insurance right one are people who were previously uninsured because they they were unable to purchase health insurance and they didn't qualify for the previous social insurance program and you can think of those as the ostensible target of a, of a social insurance expansion the other are a group we group we generally refer to as those who are exhibit a feature called crowd out so these are people who were in the private insurance market and now because the public insurance market has become more generous they move from the public or from the private to the public insurance market if your expansion has lots of crowd out lots of people who are previously in the in the in the private market that move into the public market that means that for lots of doctors what you're doing is you're changing the compensation they get for the last patient they see the marginal patient used to be that they were relatively highly compensated private insurance patients and now they're going to be relatively low compensated social public insurance patients. And as a result, you might decrease the amount of time you you participate in the labor market as a physician because you're just not paid as much for those last patients. And so I look at the expansion of children's health insurance as a part of as a part of the SCHIP program. And what I show is that for a set of providers where it appears that you know their last patient is moving from public to private insurance, we see that they do reduce the number of hours that they see patients. So they're more likely to participate in Medicaid because it's a bigger part of their patient population but they're less likely to work or the same number of hours seeing patients. Um, Now, why that's important is it gives us some sense that physician labor supply is sensitive to the reimbursement that we're seeing here. Um, And so if you think more broadly then, well, what would happen if we went to say Medicaid for all, right, where we take everyone's marginal patient and we move them into the Medicaid reimbursement system? That would have a pretty negative effect on the livelihood of doctors, which means they probably work less. Yeah, it's beyond the scope of this particular study, but as you sort of play the dynamics out in your head, it's going to change who wants to become a doctor at that point. And that that might be a concern if you want the best and the brightest people to still go into being a physician, um, that we might change the composition of who does that uh, if we decrease their reimbursement with some Medicaid or Medicare for all.
0: And that would be consistent with what we've seen in other countries, like uh, in the UK NHS system, for example, where salaries are not nearly as high as in the uh, US.
1: So I don't know that system as well, Um, I'll I'll tell you, but I would would bet... um, um, that you know it's not you know I, I'm you know the son of a Jewish mother right? the idea is always right you want your 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 son to become a doctor and your daughter to marry a doctor um, I don't I don't know if that if that thing carries as much outside the United States as well but where it comes from in the US right is the idea that doctor is this high-paying sort of very prestigious profession and maybe that changes if it becomes just an outgrowth of the government
0: I think in, in England all mothers want their, their sons to become law professors <laughs>
2: Well, that is a really excellent explanation, I think, of a lot of these dynamics, and I really appreciate the long-term effect. Um, I'm wondering now if we could turn to some of your other work, which I think is becoming both increasingly relevant right now and very relevant on a longer-term time horizon, uh, particularly your work looking at non-private hospitals as an insurer of last resort. How is that shaping up, and how has your research contributed to that debate?
1: Yeah, um... So I've got a stream of research with my colleague, uh, Matthew Noted-Widgo, who is uh, a faculty member here in the Econ Department of North- Northwestern, and Tal Gross, who's at uh, Columbia University. And we, we've we worked together on a number of projects now, but we have this stream of research focusing on the role of private firms as part of the social safety net. Um, and so so I, I know you have a viewer or listeners from outside the United States. just To give a broad overview, most of the hospitals in the United States um, are private, non- Nonprofit firms, right? And so, from a, a purely legal standpoint, the idea is that well, we expect these firms to provide some form of public good and in exchange. They don't, they don't pay any taxes, state, local income or property taxes. So it's a pretty valuable benefit. How we define their public good, at least since the uh, the, the early 1970s, is really sort of a, an amorphous statement, right? So there's no clear standard of now you provide a public good. One big feature of that historically has been: do you provide a large Amount of uncompensated care, right? For individuals who are unable to pay, do you provide uncompensated do you provide services to them without payment? That uncompensated care can come comes broadly in two forms, one of which is bad debt. And bad debt is, you know, at a very basic level, I provided this service, I meant to get paid, I tried to get paid, the person couldn't pay me, so I've had to write this off. And that actually, many businesses have that. Um, what's a little unique about healthcare is that you often have to keep treating the people even though you know you're not going to pay them. Whereas in other businesses, if someone is a like bad credit risk you just don't you don't see them anymore uh, hospitals don't have that option the other function which is more about the public good here is the idea of charity care and charity care is I know this person is low income I'm going to treat them and I'm never going to ever seek payment from them this is just purely a charitable act that I am doing because I'm a non-profit and I don't pay taxes and I'm supposed to help society in either way the combination of this uncompensated care is sort of how we have ensured that low-income people in the United States who don't have health insurance aren't just dying in the streets our hospitals do have to treat you. Uh, We do have an explicit mandate called ENTALA, which means that if you show up at the hospital in an emergency condition, the hospital actually has to treat you. It cannot ask anything about your ability to pay uh, and it must stabilize you. It can't transfer you to another facility. And that, the combination of nonprofit status, ENTALA, and some sense of sort of physician ethics where they're going to treat people who need help regardless of payment together creates a system where the hospitals are really the insurers of last resort. If you don't have health insurance and you don't have money and you need access to emergency care, the hospital will be there for you. And we and we show in our work um, that as the share of the insured in society changes, the demand on hospital uncompensated services um, also changes and they're positively correlated, right? So if you have more people without insurance, you have more uncompensated care at hospitals. And overall, we find that each newly uninsured person costs the hospital sector about $800 a year in uncompensated. Care. This is borne more by nonprofits than for profits. So, for profits still provide uncompensated care, but um, at the margin, we do show that as you see these marginal people moving in and out of the insurance market, the nonprofit hospitals are picking up a bigger share of that. Um, and so, there is some evidence in support of the of the nonprofit motive here. Um, this was research we started, and then people became a little less interested in it as the ACA sort of started getting going because uh, people thought, well, we won't have uncompensated care anymore because Everyone's going to have insurance. Um, and then we elected President Trump. Uh, people thought, oh, wait, we're, we're probably going to have a lot more people who need uncompensated care now if we repeal the ACA. Uh, and so we've done both my team with Matt and Tal and some other work that I've done with uh, David Dranov and Chris Odie in my department here. We've done some more work just looking at the nuances of how uncompensated care has changed as a result explicitly of the Affordable Care Act. Um, and so with Matt and Tal, what we've seen is that when they pass the Affordable Care Act, um, and particularly when they passed the Medicaid experience portion of the Affordable Care Act. What they saw was that the um, in states that expanded Medicaid, uh, people were able to go to for-profit hospitals more than they did before. Um, and in particular, they were able to go to hospitals that were closer to their house, right? And so it's some sense that insurance is providing these people with a differential level of access to a preferred facility. Um, and then overall, with David and Chris here in my department, what we've shown is just a marked reduction in the amount of uncompensated care that hospitals bear. Um, as a result of the passage of the Affordable Care Act, that we are um, we are definitely improving the financial health of hospitals as a result of this. And in many ways, if you take all of my work in this area together, what it shows is that one of the most important beneficiaries of expansions of social insurance are hospitals as much as they are patients. That patients were often getting access to these services, but they weren't able to pay for it. And so hospitals were bearing these costs. And our work shows that they were actually bearing it, right? That it was... It it was coming out of their profit margin, they weren't able to just pass it along to the privately insured in the form of higher prices. Um, and that might be a reason, if you think sort of in a broad political economy sense, um, about social insurance, why Medicaid has, you know, despite lots of attempts and lots of recent attempts to tear down the Medicaid program, it really is the government program for low income people that's maintained the the strongest support in the sense that it's only grown. So we've had welfare reform, we've, we've cut back the generosity of food stamps. But Medicaid has really only grown in its generosity over time. And one reason why that's the case is that it's supported very strongly politically by powerful hospital lobbying organizations who see this as a lifeblood of their ability to remain in business. And we certainly saw that playing out with the debate over the uh, GOP replacement to Obamacare. And so I think as a sum total of my work, you could you could take away that it really does demonstrate that hospitals benefit a lot from the social insurance system. A question we might want to deal with if we don't repeal Obamacare, right, if we still keep giving this large transfer to nonprofit hospitals is what else are we gonna get now for our money? Right. What I mean by that is that you know nonprofit hospitals are having this big financial transfer from the United States government. The value of their tax benefit for being a nonprofit has remained constant. And so now they should start doing other things to justify their community benefit. And I'd like to see more of a discussion on that than we often do. I think we in the US we like to castigate pharmaceutical companies and health insurance companies as being a source of ever rising health. Health insurance spending, we do very little to talk about how nonprofit hospitals in particular, but hospitals overall, the prices they charge, really do drive a lot of our spending. And then if we're going to keep giving them this really nice tax break, I'd like to see them actually do more to provide a community benefit um, than they were doing before when they also had to pay for this uncompensated care.
0: China was very much um, part one, wasn't it? And, and now maybe we're not going to see part two, but I think that's a, a great idea. So as I understand it then, ER use has actually increased slightly. But ER use by uninsured has gone down. Now, isn't that something slightly? counter to the ACA narrative that ER use was going to decline dramatically after the passage of the act. And let me link in a sort of a follow-up question to that, which is, do you think that provisions such as in Indiana's HIP 2.0 Medicaid expansion, where there is a sort of a penalty copay for what they consider to be inappropriate use of ERs, do you think those sort of $8 payments rising to $35? for subsequent visits uh, would have any effect on changing behavior there?
1: So uh, I think that the term you use that I really like is the ACA narrative, right? And there there was this statement, uh, you know, by lots of people who are pushing the political support of the bill that if we expand health insurance, you'll see this reduction in ER use. Uh, Most economists didn't expect that was going to happen. And and the reason why is that, you know, when you give someone insurance, particularly when you give them Medicaid, you're decreasing the marginal cost of going to the ER. And so we should expect you're going, to use, you're going to use the ER more. Um, that's just how we, how we think about the consumption of goods and services. The idea behind insurance or between the support of the ACA was that people didn't really want to use the ER, but they were using it because they couldn't get access to a primary care physician and they couldn't get access to a primary care physician because they weren't insured. And so we'll give you Medicaid, you'll go to the primary care doctor and they'll stop you going from the ER. Um, and we just don't have lots of evidence that, that, that to date that has happened. So some of that comes from the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment, which is uh, run by Amy Finkelstein and Kate Baker and co-authors, and they looked at a massive expansion of health insurance in Oregon with a randomized component where some people got access to Medicaid and some didn't. And what we saw is that the people who got access to Medicaid randomly used the ER more than people who didn't, and that that extended over a two-year horizon in which they looked at them. So it wasn't even like it was just sort of a a short-term effect, and then people found this primary care physician. And the question becomes sort of what's driving that, right? Is it that they can't get access to a primary care doctor? That Medicaid gives you sort of great financial Protection, but not access to primary care doctors. That could be some some feature of it. And I think there's been lots of talk about that. Could it be that the ER is a complement, not a substitute to primary care? And what I mean by that is, you call your doctor at seven at night and say, you know, I'm diabetic. I'm having you know some some negative symptoms, or I'm having chest pain, or whatever, and they tell you to go to the ER, and you now you now you actually go because you know you're covered, whereas before you might not have. All of those are possible channels where it could happen. But overall, we've seen nothing that suggests to date that the widespread spread availability of insurance decreases utilization of the ER. And so one thing we could do instead are things like what you did in Indiana with your uh, Governor Pence and his Medicaid expansion um, or overall what we see broadly across insurance is create differential cost sharing that tries to push you away from the ER by causing you to spend more money if you go there in an inappropriate way. I'm not necessarily opposed to that idea and concept. People actually respond a lot to small co-payments in in these areas, but you've got to make sure that there are options for them to go to, that there's a there's a sufficiently robust private physician network accepting new Medicaid patients. That means that when they're going to the ER, it's really that they're doing it because they they had another option they're not using, not because they have no other option. Because if it's because they have no other option, that copay seems just punitive to the poor as opposed to attempt to get them to do uh, a more economically rational behavior. Um, and so I think it needs to be paired with that. And the way you get that, um, at least part of it, is that you've got to, increase the reimbursements for uh, for primary care physicians um, through Medicaid and the lower those reimburs those lower those reimbursements are the fewer doctors will participate and the more the ER becomes the place that patients have to go because they have no other option
2: well thank you and I just have one last question what I'd really love to run by you Craig just uh, inspired by your fortune piece why it's still Trump's fault if Obamacare fails um, is the following which is you know I was just listening to some uh, a podcast of Tom Ashbrook on the vogue for dystopian fiction, Um, lots of dystopian novels being uh, read, consumed nowadays. And the first part of this question is, you know, you talked about the fallout if Obamacare fails. And I was wondering if you could, you know, just go into a few, a little bit of detail about, you know, what would that look like? Would it look like essentially zero insurers in hundreds or thousands of counties? Um, And the other side of the coin um, is, should people who are in employer-sponsored insurance, I imagine that, you know, many of us, I'll include myself in the number, are looking at the ACA unraveling and perhaps many saying, well, I'm an employer-sponsored insurer insurance, should I really worry about that? And I'm wondering if in any of the dystopian scenarios that you see playing out with, say, a a sabotaging of the ACA and a failure of the ACA, does that spill over uh, into the employer market in some ways, or is it something that is probably going to be uh, kept within the individual insurance market?
1: Yes, yeah, so I mean, you've hit on a, a personal favorite of mine. I, I'm a fan of dystopian fiction. The so w- w- Walking Dead finale was last night. Uh, so it was, <laughs> yes. It was his. Uh, so the ACA failing is going to be bad, but it's not going to be sort of Trump walking around with a barbed wire covered baseball bat bad for people. Um, <laughs> what it's going to be in particular is it's going to be bad for people primarily. The, the most immediate effects will be for people in the marketplaces, right? And so if you think about how people got insurance, where I started, how people got insurance under the ACA, right? Is that we have a bunch of people who got insurance under Medicaid and then some people who got insurance in the marketplaces. And so you should think about you know, there are about 12 million people who got insurance in the marketplaces, uh, and it's estimated about 20 million got insurance through Medicaid. And so if the ACA just crumbles, right? We don't actually pass the AHCA, but we see this, you know, decline in the viability of the marketplaces, that's gonna affect only those 12 million people. The people on Medicaid will still have access to their coverage. And then it becomes: is it that it crumbles in particular? particular states or it crumbles overall. And I think it would be in particular states. There are some places where the ACA is, is working very well, like California. Right, And no matter what, how much uncertainty Trump shows, it's going to keep working well there because they've done a very good job setting it up. And so in reality, I think you know uh, it's become sort of trite to say it, but lots of health policy people say we don't have an ACA marketplace. We have 51 ACA marketplaces. And the nature of failure is going to differ across those. At a broad level, the places the ACA is doing the worst um, tend to be places where the state government has been least receptive to Obamacare. Those are places that didn't expand Medicaid and didn't set up their own state-based exchange. They use the federal marketplace. And those will be the place I think you'll see that crumble. So you should think about like there are, we're having some difficulties in Tennessee right now. So uh, we're having some difficulties in uh, Indiana, though they were a Medicaid expansion state. Tennessee, right, unless unless something changes, right, they're going to be, you know, people in the Knoxville area right now have no insurance to pick from that have said for the 2018 marketplace. They've, that no one has come forward to say they will offer that. It's a combination of a variety of factors that, that's gotten us to that. Um, some of it is that Blue Cross Blue Shield Tennessee came in pretty low with their original premium and they lost a bunch of money and then they had both United and Humana participating and both of those have left the market entirely and so Tennessee has some collateral damage in that decision. But it's going to be sort of how healthy your state marketplace is it will, will dictate sort of how bad it's going to be in a dystopian future
0: and that was the weekend dystopian health law a big thank you to professor garthwaite for joining us uh, craig blocks at coderedblog.com go there it's a great site and on twitter you'll find him at c underscore garthwaite craig a great pleasure thanks for joining us
1: thank you so much it was great talking with you
0: we post our show notes at tour.com. i'm at nicholas terry on twitter and frank please follow me at HealthPi on twitter thank you for joining us to have a legally interesting not at all dystopian and very healthy